0: Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace.
1: Let's pray as we get started, Lord God, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We thank you for the unity that we can have with Christ and his, uh, both in his crucifixion and death and burial, and then also in his resurrection. Lord, we thank you for what that means for us. I pray that as we look at this passage that we would understand it. Uh, the fullness of what uh, that ought to mean, not only for our eternity, but for our today. And God, I pray that we would live in the victory that you've won for us, that we would live as those united to you, as those whose identity is found in you, as indeed it is. Pray all these things in your name, amen. You know, over the last year or so, The vast majority of the world has been infected. They've been infected with the exact same thing. It's surprisingly contagious. One person has it, they walk into a group, says a few things. Who knows how many people walk away with it, right? Sometimes people don't even realize they have it until much later after they've already infected numerous people. Sure, it has different strands, it has different symptoms sometimes in people, but it's essentially the same thing. I mean, you can try to mask it, but let's be honest, you're only slowing it, you're not stopping it. And the worst, the worst part is the long-term side effects. I mean, they can last, uh, they can do serious damage. You know what I'm talking about? Despair. I'm talking about despair. Despair isn't new. But lately, I think it's been Satan's weapon of choice in the world. It's everywhere. Two people can look at the same exact issue and they can despair of it in two opposite ways. That's what's so remarkably terrible about despair one person could say, oh gosh, if this is the outcome, oh, the, everything is gonna just be ruined. And another person can look at the exact same thing and say, Oh, if the opposite outcome happens, everything is going to be ruined. And that's what makes it so effective for Satan because no matter what the earthly outcome ends up being, Satan wins in that little battle. And we ought to expect a degree of despair wherever the gospel isn't. We We should, because in truth, without the gospel, there is only despair. Sin breeds it, and so wherever the gospel is not, there is no real answer for it. But despair infects churches, and it affects Christians as well. We've seen that. We've experienced that. We've experienced it in our own life, I'm sure, you as well as I. We fail to believe the gospel and we fail to apply the gospel to our lives in different areas and we despair. We despair of sin and its consequences in others' lives. We despair of sin and its consequences in our lives. We despair of sin and its consequences in the world at large. They'll never change. It will never change. It's impossible, we think. I will never change. I'll always be stuck in this sin. I'll always struggle with this. I'll never overcome it. I'll never be free. You see, there are three primary ways that we relate to sin as believers. And I kind of want to give you a little primer here because I think it sets up our passage, kind of frames it well. There are three ways in which a believer has a relationship to sin. The first is in relationship to the penalty of sin. Okay? We all have sinned. We all are legally, we stand condemned without Christ. And yet, because of what Christ has done, Christians have been saved from sin. We call this justification. We've talked about this a number, a couple of weeks ago. Paul explained justification by. Faith. And oftentimes we use this as a synonym for salvation, but that's not actually quite accurate. You see, when we talk about salvation biblically, salvation also includes two other ways that we relate to sin. Second is in relationship to the power of sin. So we got the penalty of sin. Solved by justification, Christ has died for us and moved us from one position in, with God to another. And then we have the power of sin. We're all born into sin. We're spiritually dead. We're spiritually corrupt. That's how we come into this world under sin's mastery. But through the Holy Spirit who now lives in us because of Christ, because of our faith in him, we are being saved from sin right now. We call that sanctification. It's progressive. It takes time. The third is the presence of sin. So the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin. This is like a whole three points before I even get to the sermon. So just enjoy today. Third is the presence of sin. Essentially, does sin exist in our hearts and minds at all? And we would all say, yeah, you don't say yes, then, well, you're lying, and that's sin, and so are, you know, gotcha, right? Does sin exist at all? And one day, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. So we have been saved in one sense, in the sense of the penalty of sin. We are being saved in another sense, in the sense of the power of sin, and then we will be saved in the sense of the presence of sin in our life. We call this glorification. One day we will be with Christ and sin will be no more. Today, this passage, I want to specifically talk about the second, the power of sin. I want to take some time to explain, or I took some time to explain all this, uh, to kind of frame it like I said, because oftentimes we understand justification if we even call it that, right? Uh, maybe we understand glorification to some extent, but, but we lack an adequate understanding or we lack an adequate belief in our salvation from the power of sin, we think, oh, one day God will save me, or or yeah, back then God did this thing in my life, but right now it's just what it is. And this leads to a sort of despair where though we believe we'll be saved eternally, we're defeated today. We're defeated in the present. And friends, I'm here to tell you you are not defeated if you're in Christ. You're not. Paul asked this question at the outset. He asked this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me kind of phrase it in some words that maybe might make more sense to us. If God's grace always outpaces sin, should we just sin more so that more grace happens? That's the question that Paul is throwing out. That's the question he's assuming his reader might ask. But in the church... I don't think that we use, this, this question, this idea, this principle doesn't usually manifest itself in that way. I don't hear a lot of Christians going, well, gosh, if, if, if grace is always more than sin, then maybe we ought to just sin more so we get more grace. I don't, I don't hear a lot of people saying that. I think usually, typically, this principle works itself out more in a negative sense. It goes something like this. Well, I guess sin wins today, but thank goodness God's grace will win one day. We affirm Christ's victory for us then, and just not Christ's victory for us now. We become then apathetic to our present sin that exists in our lives because, one, we really don't think we actually can overcome it, and two, well, Christ wins in the end anyways, so it's fine, I guess. Paul, though, he affirms, while affirming God's grace as being sufficient, as outpacing the sin in our life, he denies the apathy. He says, by no means, by no means should we believe this. The idea that we must or we would go on sinning is absurd to him. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? The bottom line is this, friends, and this is what I want you to understand this morning. We believers are freed from the power of sin. We are freed from the power of sin. What does Paul mean? How does this work? What are we supposed to do now? How can we be sure of this? There are some questions here that I'm going to try to answer this morning. And I want to explain it in this way. uh, I'm going to give you four points. See, so I started with three points before the sermon started, and now you get four points. So it's all extra credit day, okay? I want to share with you the reason for our freedom from sin, the result of our freedom from sin, the response to our freedom from sin, and the reassurance of our freedom from sin. Is that all on there? Look at that. All our words. Look at me. Look at me go today. Reason, result, response, reassurance. Okay, so what's the reason from our, for our freedom from sin? What, what is, how, how did this happen? Paul says we died to sin, but, but I'm not dead. I'm still breathing. You all look like you're still breathing. I don't remember any of you dying. And the reason is that through faith in Christ, that faith in Christ that Paul has detailed over the past five chapters of Romans, right, that we've talked about, that we are, we are more than ju- we are justified, but we're more than just justified. We're united with Christ, he says. United with Christ. What is that? And this unity, it's relational, but it's more than just simply saying, oh, I have a relationship with Jesus. And we, we use that phrase, and it's true, but it, it kind of doesn't do full service, doesn't do full justice to what Christ has done and what, how we are in relationship to Christ now. What he's saying here, and if you heard Caleb's sermon last week, he alluded to it a little bit, is that we have been transferred through faith from the realm or the reign of sin into the realm or the reign of Christ. We don't identify with sin anymore. We identify with Christ instead. It is this holistic change that happens in the very position, the very way in which we relate to Christ and sin and the world and everything. Thus, when Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He isn't saying that it's impossible for Christians to sin. Of course, we know that's not true, right? You sin, I sin, continue to. That would be an overstatement one we know isn't true, or, or else later Paul wouldn't implore Christians to not sin, right? So we know that's not what Paul is saying there, but, but on the other hand, he's not simply saying that now Christians have an attitude towards sin, that sin is bad. That would be an understatement. It would be true, but that would be an understatement of what he's saying. Rather, what he's saying is this, that through Adam, remember last week, that through Adam... We have all, we all come into the world under the realm, under the reign of sin. But through Christ, we have been transferred by faith into union with Christ. And now, not sinning is possible. Before, when we were under Adam's under the realm of sin, not sinning was an impossibility. We, we will sin, period. But now, under Christ, because of our unity with him, possibility is there to not sin. And Paul then shows how baptism signifies this union, this reality that we're released from sin and brought into life. And it's important to understand here that baptism isn't how we are saved, okay? You can't read this, these verses here in Romans 6, and say, oh, well, what Paul's saying is that we, the people who are saved are people who are baptized. Paul spent five chapters telling us that we're saved by faith. We're justified by faith in Christ alone. Apart from anything that we do, it would make no sense now for Paul to, automat, to, to just turn around and just go, oh, I know I said that for five chapters, but in two verses I'm going to say, but except it's, it's faith and baptism, that's what it is. No, Paul's not saying that. What he's saying or for the first century Christian, baptism was this initiation into the Christian life. It was so linked and tied so closely to our being saved by faith that Paul can use it as a sort of shorthand for our conversion into Christ and our initiation into the Christian life. Now, here's the problem that we have. Oftentimes, what we do is, because we want to resist the temptation to say that someone needs to be baptized to be saved, we often make baptism less than what Paul makes it. We often say like, well, it matters, but it's not like that big of a deal. Like as long as you believe in Jesus. No, no, it actually, Paul is saying it's actually pretty important. It's actually pretty important. It's, it's not just symbolic. It's spiritually significant for us. For someone to believe in Jesus and not be baptized would be like saying, well, I'm going to enter a race and I'm not going to eat for three days before I run the marathon. It's like you're spiritually crippling yourself, Paul is saying. It's an important initiation into the Christian life. In what ways have we been united with Jesus? Verses 3 and 4, it says that we've been baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death. One commentator puts it like this. I, I like how he says it. He says, it's not that the believer in baptism is laid in his own grave, but that through that action, he is set alongside Christ in Christ's grave. We are united with him in his death. Verse 5 says that we were united with him in his death. And verse 6 continues that our old self was crucified with him. And so the reason we are freed from sin is because we have this unity with Christ through his death and burial and resurrection. And that, that whole thing is symbolized, is, is initiated, if you will, we initiated into that life through baptism. And what then is the result of our freedom from sin? Through this union with Christ. Verse 5 says, That if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look, look in the text for the in order that statements. Look in our passage for Statements of result of in order that. Verse 4, it says, we were buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 6 says, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, death, it releases a person from slavery. You can't enslave a dead person, right? If a person is put into slavery in the first century, a person went into debt or, or, or for whatever reason, they couldn't pay their bills or whatnot, and they would go into slavery with under someone else until they were able to work that off, right? And if they died, that whole contract was released because they're dead now. They can't be enslaved if they're dead. And so there, the debt of slavery, it's not passed on to someone else in some way. When we are united with Christ through faith in his death, that ends our slavery debt and contract. It, it ends our slavery to sin. It sets us free from it. Just as Christ's death released him, and his resurrection sealed his victory over sin and death, so too, as we are united with him, it does the same thing. You know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that many Christians talk about obedience to Christ, that many Christians talk about being obedient to God and to his word, as if it's like this drudgery, as if it's like, oh, I got, well, but I got to do what Jesus says. You know, that's what I'm supposed to do. As if, I mean, it is a weight that we can't carry if we think that following Christ and being obedient to Christ is what saves us. I want you to understand that is a weight you can't carry. You will never be obedient sufficiently enough to save you. But through faith, that weight is taken off. Through what Christ has done, that that weight is taken off, and obedience it becomes our freedom. You see, often we have in our heads that freedom is complete self-rule. If I could just decide what I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it, that that friends is true freedom. That's what we think. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is no such thing as autonomous self-rule. But you will always submit to something. We're going to talk about this more next week. But you'll always be submitted to something. You can't just do whatever you want. If you do whatever you want, that necessarily means that someone else doesn't do whatever else they want. That, that, that kind of freedom doesn't exist, actually. It's a figment of our imagination, the Bible says that you're either under Christ, you're either united with him and in his realm, in his reign, or you're united to sin and in sin's realm and in sin's reign. That when you say, oh, I want to do whatever I want, really what you're doing is you're submitting yourself to your sinful desires. That's what you're becoming a slave to. And you, you think you're free, but you're not free. You're bound to whatever it is you're chasing after. True freedom, then, biblically, is submitting to the design and the desire of our maker and savior. If God created everything, if he created you, then he knows the best, freest way for you to flourish. And when you submit to his way, you flourish. When you don't, you don't. There's plenty of talk about freedom and tyranny these days, and tyranny can be defined. We could define tyranny as cruel or oppressive rule and everyone seems to have their thing that they call tyranny and there's a place and a time to dissect those things and it's not right now for me. My point today is this, there is no tyranny, there is nothing more cruel and oppressive than when sin is ruling in someone's life. In fact, sin is the root of all tyranny. It is the tyranny of tyrannies, if you will. And the worst part about sin is this, sin has a way of making us think that we're doing something good for ourselves, that that it's giving us freedom while it's actually enslaving and killing us. That's what's terrible about sin. It will make you think that you're serving yourself, that you're getting these great things while it's secretly murdering you. Any and all tyranny in the world that we see starts and is the result of the tyranny of sin. So if Christ has freed us from the tyranny of sin, how then do we actuate that freedom? How do we actuate the freedom that we have from sin that we, that we truly really have? And Paul gives us a few responses here that we should have to our freedom in sin. Ways that we ought to respond to this reality Verses 9 and 10, it reminds us of the kind of death and life that Christ has that we now share with him because we're united with him, right? If he was raised, he can't die again. Death has no dominion over him. And his death was for all who are in him. And we're united in his life and he lives for God. so too we can live for God. Verse 11 says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If this is true of, of Jesus and we're united with him, then you ought to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When it says consider, or another word you might use here is reckon, reckon yourself, what it's talking about Is the way in which we ought to think about ourselves in relation to sin and in relation to God. Now, I want you to understand here that this is not wishful thinking. It's not like just oh positive, you know, just give me some positive vibes here, and it'll all be okay. This isn't like oh if you if you can dream it, you can do it, guys. No, that's not what Paul is saying. We don't are believing something doesn't magically bring it into existence. You see this, you see this in the world today. Well, if you just believe if you just really believe it, it's as good as that that means it's real f- for you. No, it either is real or it's not. You're either believing a lie or you're believing the truth. It's one or the other. And what Paul is saying is this is true, so believe it. This is true, so think that way. Don't believe a lie instead. So there's a couple of responses, or or, or I should say the first response then is this, to change your thinking about sin. If you're here today and you think, and you came in and you thought to yourself, you know, I'm a believer. I'm saved by faith through Christ. I'm I'm, going to have eternal life. I'm going to be in heaven. Uh, But man, today, like, there's just nothing I can do about this sin. In my life, there's nothing, there's nothing that's, that, that can happen with the sin in this other person's life. Like, it's just, there's no hope there. you gotta change, You got to change your thinking about sin and align it with the truth of Scripture. It is true that the mind is a powerful thing, and Paul knows that. And later in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, he says to offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice, to present yourself to him, as he says in this passage. And then he says, you, you can be conformed to the world or you can be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind, he says in Romans twelve two. Mind is a powerful thing. If you begin to align your mind with what God says is true, what his word says is true, it will have a transformational impact in your life. It will. But not because you believe it, but because it's true and the Holy Spirit is working through God's word in your life. But if you give your mind over to other things, if you instead of giving your mind over to God and meditating on his word and seeking to believe what he says, if you give your mind over to other things, there's no space after all the YouTube videos that you've watched and all the TikToks and all the Facebook posts that you've read, there's no space for God's word, then, then what do you think will happen to the way that you think about yourself and the world and God? When Paul says in verse 6 that the old self is dead, we hear that, and sometimes we think to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm my new self in Christ, but sometimes when I sin, then I go back to being my old self. Like, like, there's these two selves, like we're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? And like, sometimes I'm my old self when I sin, and it's like, that's kind of unfortunate. And then sometimes when I'm following Jesus, then I'm my new self. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, your old self is dead. It ain't alive anymore. It don't exist. If you're in Christ, it's gone. You don't have an old self to go back to. I think this is illustrated really well by a story about the church father, Augustine. I don't know whether this actually happened. History brings it down, but I think it illustrates the point well, so I'm going to share it. See, Augustine, before he came to Christ, he had lived with a mistress for a a long time. And after his conversion, one day she met him on the street. You know, they were, he was walking down the street. It's like 300-something A.D., right? And they're walking down the street, and she sees him. And she yells, she, it's, it's, the story goes, she yells, Aurelio, Aurelio. She calls out to him. That's his first name. I don't know. Back then, they never used people's first names very much. Aurelio, Aurelio, she calls out to him. And he continues walking, ignoring her calls. She runs to him and she grabs him. Aurelia, what's the matter of you? What's the matter with you? It's I. To which he, I just imagine him kind of slowly turning and responding in like a really like sage-like way. The matter, dear lady, is that it is not I. You see, he considered himself a completely different person. After being united with Christ, he was not the person who had her as a mistress. He was a different person altogether. We consider ourselves a totally different person. Christian, Christian, you don't have to sin. I want you to get that in your head. You don't, you don't have to. Whatever that thing is, like you, you don't have to do it. Not because you're awesome, but because Christ is awesome. And you're united with him. And so that brings us to this second response, which kind of has two sides. So response 2A, if you will, we should become an intolerant to sin. We should have an intolerance for sin. And let's be honest, we find it really easy to be intolerant of sin in other people's lives while consistently tolerating the sin that exists in our life, right? Right? Like, like other people's sin is just, oh, I can't believe how they would do that. That's terrible. But, but then we sin and it's like, well, okay, but I mean like, like this and this was going on and it's kind of justified because blah, 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 blah. It's like we're really tolerant of sin in our life. So I want you to understand when I say being tolerant to sin, I'm specifically talking about being intolerant to the sin in your life, being intolerant to your sin. Verse 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, sin doesn't rule you anymore. You're not under the, its reign. You're not under its regime. Don't act like it does then. You, have, you ever, have you ever had one of your kids, if, if you're a parent, have you ever had one of your kids begin to talk like they're in charge of the house, like they're the parent? Like, just, just, it just happens naturally. Like, all of a sudden, they're just like, yeah, we're gonna blah, 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 blah. Or they're talking to their sibling, and they're like, yeah, don't do that. And are like, no, 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 time out. How quickly I stop that? How quickly do you stop that? It's like, nope, that ain't happening. You're not the parent. You're not the adult. I am. But we allow sin to do that all the time. Why don't we cut sin off mid-sentence like we do our kids when they do that? Why do we let sin talk like it's an authority in our life when it is not? Uh, John Owen said... This is one of my favorite quotes. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is true. The other side of this, response two B, if you will, is you must serve your new king be intolerant to sin, but you also have to serve your new king. It's not, it can't only be that you don't do certain things. It must also include a surrendering to the true king and a pursuit of his goals and of his kingdom. We're going to talk about this more next week, but I'll just give you a little primer into it. Verse 13, it says, it continues, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God. There's an active, it's not like, There's an active nature to this, that you are actually presenting yourself to God, that you'd actually come into every day and go, okay, God, today's a new day, and I am presenting myself to you. What what do you want me to do today? What do you want to do with my life today? What do you want to do with my day at work? What do you want to do with my day at home? How do you want me to live? Do you know that, that every part of who you are Every part is to be presented to God, offered up to God, to be used how he wants for righteousness sake. Every part. There is no part that is not to be presented. Your intellect, your talents, your possessions, your hands and feet, your physical body, everything. Friends, there's only two options. You either offer them to Jesus in his service, or you offer them up to sin for sin service. Those are the only two options the Bible gives us. Which will it be? Listen, some of you this morning, you know your faith is in Christ, and you know that you've been justified, and you've been saved from the penalty of sin, but you would say that you still feel like sin has a tyrannical rule over your life, and that's a significant thing. Feeling like sin has a a, a tyrannical rule over your life, even when it doesn't, that's still... Significant and it affects your life, and perhaps or perhaps it feels like sin has this rule over certain areas of your life. Maybe it's not the whole thing. Maybe it's just one particular area. you just can't get oh, you just can't get over that. I want you to know that you have been saved from the penalty of sin, that even when you go back to that sin, that Christ's forgiveness is sufficient. I want you to know that grace does outpace your sin. It does. Like however far away you think your sin takes you, God's arm of grace is longer. But I also want you to know that you are being saved from the power of sin. That we've been transformed from under the rule of sin and into the rule of Christ. We no longer have to sin. We can walk in the newness of life. You can. You can. You can. And I know I know this isn't something that God always he might not always do this completely, and he might not always do this at the pace that we want it to happen. It may not always be an immediate change, and God I think has his reasons but but you don't have to despair. you can have hope you can you see oftentimes even though the shackles of sin have been released and the prison doors of death have been swung open and unlocked by Christ, we find ourselves crawling back into that familiar cell and closing the doors as if they're locked when they're actually still not and putting those shackles back on our wrists because the feeling of that metal holding us down is just something familiar about it, something almost comforting because we've lived in it for so long. But friends, don't put yourself back into those prisons. Be free in Christ. Our confidence, it wanes at times when we feel like failures, and oftentimes we have this, this sense of failure in whatever area that's just immobilizing to us. and Satan wants you to believe the lie, that you are still in prison, that there's nothing you can do. And this is where I, I love this passage, because there's one last verse, verse 14. And it gives us this reassurance of our freedom from sin. Listen, listen to what it says. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. Do you, do you hear that? Did you, did you read that correctly? It doesn't say, for sin shouldn't have dominion over you. It doesn't say, don't let sin have dominion over you. It doesn't say, for sin might not have dominion over you. It says, for sin will have no dominion. That is not a command. It is a promise. Man, that is powerful. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. You're not under the law, but under sin or under grace. You're not under sin. You're under Christ. The promise of freedom over the power of sin is not based on how well you perform. It's based on what Christ has done for you. It's based on the reality of our freedom from the penalty of sin. Since Christ rose again, sin and death have no dominion over him. And since they can't, and since he can't die again, and since we're united with him, we have victory here. Thus, we, sin will not, sin cannot have dominion over us. It can't. We're, we aren't under the law as a means to be found righteous, which leads to just failure upon failure and condemnation and despair. We are under grace as a means to be found righteous, which leads to obedience and justification and hope. Hope. Put it another way. If we're under the law, it's commands with no power to obey. But when you're under grace, it's commands with the power to do it. You have the power in Christ. So Christian, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're walking in here and you're going, man, God is delivering me from these sins and, it, and, and he's transformed my life and it's fantastic. And I would say, man, if that's you, I'd say, man, keep going. Don't slack. Don't ever, you know, drop down a gear. Just keep charging forward. But if you're a believer and you walk in and you go, man, there's just some areas of my life where I have just let sin run rampant. Maybe 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 one at one time it wasn't that way, but maybe you just you've just grown lax and and you've been surrendering yourself to sin over and over and over again. And now it just feels like such a heavy burden. It feels so like like so much that it's immobilizing. How could I ever get out of this? And I want you to know that that you on your own, you can't. But Christ can. And it doesn't start, it doesn't start by trying harder. It starts by surrendering more. If you would take those areas of your life, you'd take them to the cross, take them to Christ, and you would say, you know what, I'm so sorry that I unnecessarily surrendered these areas of my life to sin. And Christ... I know that you are the one that actually reigns in me. I know that you are the one that I'm united with, not these sins. And so God, would you, I I hand these areas of my life over to you. Would you do what only you can do? I promise you, he will change those areas of your life. It may not happen in an instant, but he will begin to transform you in ways you can't imagine. But if you're not yet a Christian and you feel trapped in sin, I want you to know You are trapped in sin. You are. But Christ can free you. You don't have to despair because this is the gospel that God loves and saves rebel sinners like you and me through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And he can free you today. You can have real, true freedom in Christ. You would come to him confess and repent of your sin and turn and run to him and put your faith in him instead of those things. That's so why I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want to give you an opportunity if you're a believer to remember what Christ has done and the freedom that he's won for you and to celebrate that. I want to give you the opportunity if you're a believer and you are being crushed, you feel crushed by sin to, to go to the cross through communion, through remembering what Christ has done and to submit those things again to him. And I want to give you an opportunity. If you're not yet a believer, I want you to know that communion isn't for people who don't know Christ. They're not, it's not for those who haven't put their faith in him. It's for those who have. And yet, this is a great opportunity for you to go to God and to ask him to do what only he can do. And the wonderful thing about Jesus is he says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. Never.